all the leaves are brown and the skies are grey. And we're back for season two of Somewhere to Believe in, the podcast brought to you by Greenbelt Festival. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. We are hurtling towards Christmas. Christmas trees up in my house. Really? Yep. I've noticed that seems to be a thing. Loads of people seem to be going really early and really large with Christmas decorations this year. Do you think it's a response almost to the crappy year that we've had? Yeah, and there's nothing else to do. Like now, putting up Christmas decorations is like a big night out, isn't it? Big night in. (laughs) (laughs) All round to mind to decorate the tree. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I must admit, we have put up a star in one of our windows. Uh, That's a token gesture towards the Christmas decoration. But you've gone full tree. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't gone full. Um, yeah, I have gone full tree. Last year, I bought because it was the first time I'd had my own place. Um, I bought a massive real tree, and it was just such a pain. Every time you walked past it, it would stick you with pine needles. I had holes in my feet for like months afterwards. So this year, I've actually gone for a cheap fake tree. We've just been building this house, and so it'll be the first Christmas that we'll have spent in the house it's not finished but there is a sense that it needs the christmas tree gesture is going to be quite important this year to dress the house as it were it might be the only finished thing in the house i love that i can actually see as you're saying that wires coming down from the ceiling behind you and plaster on the walls it's like some sort of torture dungeon Um. (laughs) you're going to need more tins more than tinsel to cover that pool Uh, In more important news, though, Catherine, I saw on Instagram at the weekend that you have finished your jumper. It's true. Are you feeling smug, happy, satisfied? How does it feel to have finished your first jumper? Listen, I've learned that actually knitting isn't the hard thing. What's the hard thing is when you put it together and you realise that you've (laughs) you've misknitted everything into random lengths and sizes. So, yeah, I've got a jumper. It's a little bit higgledy-piggledy. There's a hole in the neck, but... I do feel quite proud that I've made something. And is it warm? It's so warm. It's so heavy and so warm. Now, the thing is, though, Catherine, I can see you on screen while we're recording and that jumper looks good. You are rocking that jumper and I can't tell any higgledy-piggledyness about it, to be honest. It's because all the higgledy-piggledy stuff is at the back. (laughs) (laughs) Good move. (laughs) That's where the third sleeve is. So, Paul, talking about fashion, you know, there's been um, there's been talk at the moment about the fact that fast fashion has maybe reached its peak. Yeah, yeah. I saw, I think there was that one, it was covered in the media quite a bit, but there was one offer through one of the Boohoo outlets. I can't remember which particular brand, but it was a 99% reduction, which gave you a dress for 8p. I mean, it's just insane. Like, I think that, you know, I've been not had a lot of expendable income for a lot of portions of my life and so I would have to buy kind of cheap things or I would try and buy a lot of secondhand things and stuff like that and you end up none of this stuff lasts you know you would buy shoes that maybe would last like six months and as soon as I started having a bit more expendable income I would take my money and I would 
you know, my Doc Martens now have lasted me for five years and they're still going. That one dress that I referenced there is is quite literally designed to be worn once because you've only paid 8p for it. I don't know. It's it's a weird sort of agenda, isn't it? it and you know what else is weird, right? If you start having a look at what people are wearing in high society, like, you know, the upper middle class or the what's it? What's what's above the middle class? Rich class. Money class. Yeah, them, them, yeah. (laughs) Bourgeoisie. Well, they... Nice. (laughs) Nice. The stuff that they're wearing is stuff that never goes in or out of fashion. It's stuff that it doesn't play by those rules. It's, you know, Chanel suits that will still be fashionable in 20 years' time. You know, there's, there's, it's not the same games played at that level. You know, you're talking to the wrong person here, Catherine, when it comes to like having a really interesting discussion about fashion. But <laughs> to come full circle, I think that you knitting your jumper and us talking about fast fashion, there's a link there. And I think there's, there's you know, making things that last, that you can treasure, that work and that do what they say on the tin. But I guess the thing is, we would also want um, everybody to have access to that good stuff. Yeah, and it's just not possible. This is one of the most expensive jumpers that I own now that I've made myself. (laughs) (laughs) I think we uh, need to get on and introduce our special podcast guest for this week because um, I think you and I both loved chatting with him. Um, Who are we speaking to this week, Catherine? Well, this week we're speaking to singer, songwriter, theatre maker Ben Kaplan. We've had him at the festival, I think, was it 2016? He played our main stage. He's an artist that I found in Brighton at a gig and is just beautiful. His voice is incredible. His lyrics are amazing. Just somebody that is, again, perfect for Greenbelt. So, Ben, um, thank you for joining us. Where, where are we talking to you? I know you're actually on an, what you call in Canada an off-ramp, but perhaps you could give us, like, perhaps even the road number or the district or the area. Describe where I, where are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just off the Trans-Canada Highway in the parking lot of a Tim Hortons, which is a very uh, iconic Canadian fast food restaurant. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm on my way to, uh, to the province of Ontario, where I'm going to be performing a socially distant concert in a little church hall. Um, and, and, yeah, so I'm just, I'm just en route to go spend about a month uh, living in Ontario and doing some work there. Nice. And and will this have been your first socially distanced gig? No, I've been actually extraordinarily fortunate. So I, I live in Atlantic Canada in the province of Nova Scotia, and we have what's called the Atlantic bubble in operation, which is that we have an extremely low caseload in all four Atlantic provinces. And so um, in, in Nova Scotia, where I live, I think we have two active cases right now. And so that has allowed us to open back up in a, in a way that is... I suppose less less the case in the UK, where we're having um, socially distant concerts. Um, masks are are mandated. You're not allowed to be in any public space without a mask. Um, but that has allowed us to uh, to have concerts where where uh, individual bubbles of people can be six feet apart and and to to go back to the the business of live music again to us to a certain degree. That's the dream right now, isn't it? Oh man, yeah, we feel pretty pretty fortunate about it. 
So you mentioned you're on your way to play in a small church hall. Um, I read somewhere that you, it sounded delightful that you're on a poster, I think, for something called like the Small Halls Tour or something like that. Is that uh, do I remember that right? That's exactly it. Yeah, it's the, it's the Small Halls Festival. Yeah, I like the idea of that. Yeah, it's a lovely thing that happens in a couple of different places in Canada where where you're, you know, the, the festival is, as an entity is able to do sort of block booking of, of some, you know, larger artists than many very small towns would normally have access to and um, and present present these shows in, in some more rural places and some beautiful spaces that don't get live music often enough. What has it felt like to uh, live through this pandemic this summer in Canada? How has it been for you? Because we know that south of the border in the States, it's been a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I mean, even even across Canada, we've got a lot of different scenarios. Um, but the Atlantic region in particular uh, has had, a, has had a, a relatively easy go of it. I would say that since about June or July, we've had a low enough caseload that we have been able to start to peek our heads back out into the world and to be social again. Um, initially, it was, it was, you know, two household bubbles could interact with each other. And then that turned into a whole political thing of like, you know, everybody wondering like, hey, have you got, have you got a bubble to pair up with? And all these different groups flirting with each other. Oh, well, I, I, maybe I could be in your bubble, but I'm talking to somebody else who's got a cottage. So I might, <laughs> I might bubble up with them instead. Um, so it's been an interesting scenario of, of slowly coming back out. And then I certainly have a lot of pride in our, our local um, officials and, and our local population that when strict rules were put in place, despite the low caseload, uh, people were pretty keen to take those up and to maintain those rules. And so I think that that has allowed us to, to keep that caseload low. Um, but it's been surreal just to be you know, experiencing that in, in Atlantic Canada and to look, you know, across the border south or even towards Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, some of the bigger Canadian cities and to see how dire things are in some other places. So it's, it's um, yeah, it's just a feeling of, of tremendous gratitude. And how, how have you found this period? Have, has, it, has it been a change of pace for you? Absolutely. I mean, in, in March, uh, I was getting ready to fly to Europe to go present my theater show in Poland, followed by a tour through Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Um, and so that obviously didn't happen. Uh, I had maybe four or five months worth of contracts evaporate uh, within a two or three day period. Um, so that was devastating. But it was also, looking back, just a tremendously fortunate thing. I mean, I've been touring so consistently for the last 10 years, I mean, something like, you know, eight to 10 months a year on the road. So to have this forced pause has been just a, a tremendous benefit to me personally, just rebalancing the, um, the building blocks of my own life career aside. It's weird because a, a few other artists we've talked to, and I felt that experience too, being forced to kind of stay still and not do anything for a while has been really beneficial for me because my world is normally really mad and busy and has been for years. And so you just, you don't get that time just to sit and reevaluate things, do you? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, a lot of people have been asking me how much writing I've been doing in this time. And the answer is not a tremendous amount because I've been more focused on that introspective stuff that the, the the things about figuring out what my identity is as a human being outside of my identity as a performer and and trying to ground out some of those things 
And have you come to any conclusions, Ben, or is it early days? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I read a tweet from a, a friend, Michael Fierstack, who's a great Canadian songwriter. He, he wrote a tweet not that long ago that said, you know, I've been working on myself for the last 40 years. I really thought I'd be done by now. Um, <laughs> and so... <laughs> That's that's uh, that's how I feel about it. You know, it's uh, it's a never ending process, but I, I feel like it's been a blessing to have had time to really look at that process and to be um, engaging in it more mindfully than I normally am. Truly he taught us to love. have you had over there from your country um in terms of being a musician and not being able to earn a paycheck and all those kind of things yeah there was a broad uh, canadian program called the canadian emergency response benefit or what we all call CERB, uh and it was a, a really fabulous program they they put very few limits on it it was think something to the effect of if you have not had work for the last you know x period of weeks um you're eligible for this benefit of two thousand dollars a month um and there was very little um you know administrative bureaucratic hoops to jump through in order to access that money and so normally as a musician as an, I, i'm an independent self-employed um you know contractor entrepreneur whatever you want to call it uh and so t- typically the structure of most uh, EI style programs, uh, employment insurance programs, um, you know, just just aren't aren't available to to people like me. And what was great about this program was they said we're going to cut the red tape and we're going to make this maximally as possible to as many people. It's going to be on our system to apply, and then we're going to audit it on the back end. But first, we're going to get the money out the door. So you better you know use the honor system because we are going to be doing audits. Uh, and I, I thought that was just a really great approach because for me it meant that you know not only did I lose work but I also lost you know close to twelve thirteen thousand dollars in in expenses on flights and marketing and hotels that couldn't be replaced for upcoming tours. So as an entrepreneur, it was devastating. And then as a self-employed person, um, you, you know it was it was uh, you know facing the complete absence of any work. So having that program was an immediate huge psychic relief. And then a number of the Canadian arts funding programs agreed to fund projects that hadn't happened um, if, if documentation could be provided. So that helped to cover some of my tremendous losses in the wake of all the cancellations. So you know, all of that combined, I, I just feel like I've come out in a, in a fortuitous position when it could have been just a disaster. Oh, that sounds uh, yeah, really good. We don't hear that story with every artist we talk to, so I don't I think, think I've heard anybody speak positively about their government response or their government for years. Actually, it's really it's really <laughs> nice to hear that. <laughs> it is. I think we perhaps ought to relocate. Uh, <laughs> Um, ben, you mentioned, you know, having been on the road for, for 10 years and, and this um, this pause having given you a chance to think about your identity. If we rewind to your early life, wh- when was it that you 
first started to discover this artistry, this artistic thread to your identity, this this need to express yourself? When did when did you start singing and songwriting? I guess I would say from a from a relatively young age. I think um, you know I, I remember having little books of, of poems and, and and lyrics and things like that when I was you know seven, eight, nine years old. Um, I mean, I think the main reason I remember is because my one of my little books of poems got uh, got stolen by a classmate, and I was mocked for you know being such a sissy boy that I would write rhyming verse. Um, so I, I think it's something that's always been with me. Um, and I think you know when I was thirteen, I got my first guitar. When I was sixteen, I started my first band. Um, so it's something that's been been an important thread through much of my life. And what's what's been the main source of your material? Has it just been quite literally looking around you, your your own experiences, your own life interactions um, uh, that have you know formed the the content of what you've expressed? I think that that's that's uh, a large bulk of where my source material comes from. But I think that. Um, you know, equally important, if not more important, is, is the books that I've read, the experiences that I've had it, 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 with with teachers uh, and mentors. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, a lot of my songs have a, a, a political tinge to them. I'm informed in some of my thinking there by writers like John Ralston Saul, a Canadian public uh, academic philosopher, um, or, or, you know, reading classical, you know, European philosophical texts from, you know, um, Heidegger to Foucault and, and um, uh, looking back at Kant, who, by the way, I think is a monster um, and, uh, you know, other thinkers like that. So I, I try I'm trying consciously to place myself in the context of a, of a larger conversation about um, how to be, how to live, what it means to be a person. I think you do that really well. And that's like a sign of a really great artist to me is when they can get the audience to emote with stories that they might not have experienced themselves or see another person's point of view or understand something a bit more about their world or the world around them. And I think that's what you do in your music and also in your theatre show, which I have seen, um, your theatre show called Old Stock, A Refugee Love Story. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was a project that uh, was started in 2015. My, um, I, I, it's a, a project that I built with two other collaborators, Christian Berry, who is a director and theater maker and producer and, and writer, and Hannah Moscovich, who is a, a, just an extraordinary playwright. And so the, the project started when Christian Berry called me up and asked if I wanted to try to make some theater. Um, and at, at first, we didn't know what we were going to make. He was going to have a Jewish son, and uh, I was a, a you know, proud, artistic, art-making Jew. Uh, and so we thought there might be something interesting to explore there. And as we were exploring the ideas around what kind of thing we wanted to make, what sort of story we wanted to tell, what the aesthetic of the piece would be, we saw the image of the, the young... Um, Syrian boy, uh, Elin Kurdi, uh, who washed up on a beach in Turkey. And just the, the scale, the size, the scope, the intensity of the Syrian refugee crisis became deeply apparent to us around that time. And it was also something that was being discussed, um, you know, in the media, of course, and in Canadian politics. At that time, we were experiencing a Canadian leadership debate uh, for a general election. Um, and the prime minister, the then prime minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, 
he made a comment uh, trying to discuss the issue of being overly generous with providing health care to people who hadn't had their refugee status um, affirmed at this point. We didn't know if they were just economic opportunists who wanted to just do the thing of making a better life for their kids, or if they were running from actual violence. And so he said old stock Canadians don't want to be spending money on these potentially spurious claimants. And it was like an alarm bell went off in my head with this phrase, old stock Canadians, because what does that mean? I mean, we, we live in a country where we're either all First Nations or we're settlers. And so I don't think that the prime minister meant, I don't believe that indigenous Canadians uh, want to be supporting refugee rights. Um, it was a dog whistle. And he was trying to draw a distinction between new arrivals and and what I perceived in that moment to be white, um, waspy uh, Canadians who come from old money, who come from the old world. Um, and, and you know, when I think about my own family, you know, my great-grandparents emigrated to Canada in the 1800s. Um, they were fleeing violence in, in Romania and in Poland and in uh, the, the, um, the western reaches of the, of the Russian Empire. Um, and so they were not considered old stock Canadians when they arrived. My parents, even two generations later, uh, had to deal with anti-Semitism growing up and being made to feel like they did not belong to the fabric of Canadian society, but that they were somehow other. And I've had the privilege in my life of not having to confront much of that. Um, does that make me an old stock Canadian? Was I supposed to have been included in that catch-all phrase? Um, there's a profound dissonance that I experienced. And so we decided to make a piece of work that explored this concept of Jewish identity, Jewish heritage, Jewish history, but through the lens of the contemporary moment and thinking more politically about the Syrian refugee crisis than anything to do with the tragedies that, that my great-grandparents endured, um, but using their story as a way of, of thinking about the contemporary moment. Once there was a mama bird who flew across the sea Carrying a fledgling young aloft upon the breeze The time had come to migrate as the chill fell on the land The fledglings were too weak to fly, too young to understand Mama took them on her back, the three, into the sky And set upon a journey with a Political awkwardness around migration uh, seems to be so prevalent. But what is it? Why did you want to um, address that through through artistry? Did you th do you think that in a way making theatre about this this age old story um, had more impact perhaps than the usual political discourse? In other words, does art have a have a power and a way in that that um, usual forms of discourse perhaps don't? I would say that. Um tools like theater and music and dance and visual representation have the ability to communicate in ways that political discourse does not always. Uh, there are things that are easier expressed in a painting than are expressed in a monologue. There are things that are easier expressed in a song than are expressed in a political speech. Uh, these different media have different strengths and different weaknesses. And I think that Part of what has been missing from the public discourse is a deep sense of the humanity of the people whom we are speaking about. 
And I think that that's a difficult thing to fully download into the consciousness of the person you're trying to communicate with through speech. It's not impossible. There are great orators who have done it. Um, But I uh, am not in a position uh, to be a great orator that a lot of people are listening to, at least not yet. I'm not running for office anytime this week. Um, So theater was was a tool that was available to me. And I think that it was an effective tool. I want to say as as well, just related to your comment about this ongoing crisis in in the UK with with, uh, the way that this discourse is being operated, I'm going to go ahead and say that I believe that it's a failure of the left to tell stories about who we are. And I think that the, the political right has been very skillful in generating narratives that create meaning. And I think that the desire for meaning is something that we shouldn't hold against anyone. And so it's, it's easy to see what these narratives are on the right, fighting for a proud England, returning to a sense of who we are, you know, all of these kinds of things. It's offering people something that's tangible and it's something that's reasonable and something that, of course, we all desire in our lives. And on the left, the side that is more inclined to emphasize the rights of migrants and refugees and their humanity, we have failed to build national narratives that explain to us the purpose and the meaningfulness of what we are engaged in. And I think as an artist, that is a role that I have to play where I see this tremendous lack and this failure. Yeah, that's really interesting. Very interesting, Ben. I think you're right. And one of the, I mean, talk, talking as we are about your theatre show and your music, you might get the feeling, our audience might get the feeling that your music could be uh, quite heavy. And But you, you, there's a lot of lightness and silliness in your music and your theatre too, which I really love. It's like an, it's, it's a way of digesting what you're saying in a really still playful way. Yeah, I think I think that's really important, uh, you know, partially because of the medium that I'm working in. Who wants to go see a theater show that's uh, an hour and a half of me telling people about how bad the world is? Um, <laughs> it's just not interesting. Um, but I, I also think that that life itself is, is about finding moments of joy. And I think that we need to find moments of joy and, and to be able to laugh at the absurdity of it all. Because if we can't do that, then what is it all for? How was it sort of researching, I imagine, the, the stories um, that, that formed uh, your collaborators and your past that, that fed into the show? What was that learning process like, learning those stories and, and then thinking about how to retell them? Well, I mean, it was it was heavy uh, at times. I mean, just there's so, so much ugliness in, in, in history. Um, but, you know... <laughs> It was one thing to do research about the, the pogroms, these, these sort of violent outbursts that, that shook, um, you know, hundreds of Jewish communities across um, Eastern Europe and Western Russia uh, through the, um, the, the mid to late 1800s and on into the early 20th century. And then what people call the final pogrom, the Holocaust, um, you know, looking into the details of, of the specific massacres in specific villages. I mean, the Holocaust looms so large in Jewish history and in contemporary history that some of these experiences are um, mostly erased and forgotten. So, so looking into the horrors of some of these moments was shocking and um, uh, 
you know, emotionally resonant in, in uh, ways that were not always pleasant. Um, but what it allowed me to do, I think more importantly, was to see myself in bombed out buildings in Aleppo and to look at these images of rubble and to be able to imagine human stories and human lives and lost dreams and children who loved their mothers who died in their sleep. You know, like these kinds of things are, are very difficult to look at for the amount of time that it is required to understand. We see them and we look away. We see them and we look away. We have to. The cognitive load is, is too heavy. But I think it's important to occasionally take a moment to look at it and keep looking at it. And I think that's something that we, we very consciously tried to do in Old Stock. There's, it's a funny play. It's a play with laughter and joy. But there's moments in the show where you are forced as an audience member to confront profound violence and there's nowhere to go. And I think that we get the audience to forgive us for putting them through that by allowing them a big laugh shortly after. Uh, and then again, shortly after, and then walking out of the theater with a smile on their face. But I think that we, in, in some sense, we, we try to trick them into opening their hearts to us so that we can pour in a little bit of ugliness for them to have to confront. The world is an overflowing gutter. It bubbles with a brine of shit and blood. Those who keep their eyes upon the heavens Are the ones who will wind up face down in the mud It's yeah, just wow. such a lovely way to describe that. I think that that's, uh, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of what we try to do with our festival as well, which is this balance of really having these conversations around these very heavy, difficult things, but also the importance of joy and getting together and dancing and, you know, feeling what it is to be human and connecting with people in order that you will care for them and want to be listening to the hard stuff too. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a very tricky tightrope act. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's important work and I'm, I'm grateful that you guys are out there doing it. Well, thank you. Um, and Ben, you, you've mentioned, um, you know, that that um, at times um, really, really difficult and horrific Jewish history coming from Europe. Um, how does your Jewishness play into you, your identity and your artistry? Is it is it in a cultural sense or in a religious sense or in, in both ways or in multiple ways? I'm, I'm really interested in the way uh, that your, you know, your Jewishness plays into your work and identity. Yeah, I would say that it is in every way. Um, I think that it's it's difficult for me to separate my Jewishness from any other part of my identity. Um, I think that that growing up in a in a relatively observant observant uh, Jewish household and having received um, a relatively detailed Jewish education growing up, um, you know, there are principles um, that guide not what I do, but how I see the world and how I see my place in the world. And I think that that informs then everything that comes after that. So one of those things is social justice and the idea that there is a mission in the world of repair. There's a central concept in Judaism called tikkun olam, and it means fixing the world or repairing the world. So there's this idea that the world is, is sort of perpetually and inevitably 
in a state of disrepair and that we are tasked with a personal mission of trying to bring light into the world. Um, so that, that is a, a, a sense of, of mission in my life that is sometimes, you know, a loud clarion call and is sometimes a whisper. Um, but it, I, I would say is ever present. Um, and then I think, you know, beyond that, I have been blessed to have experienced anti-Semitism in my life. What do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, through just a, a half a dozen experiences of being made to feel like somebody didn't like me or want me around because of something deep about who I was that I couldn't change, um, I've, I've learned and understood what it means to have to constantly wonder what is operating in a negative experience. So, you know, when somebody uh, is rude to you in a coffee shop, just to, for a, a trite example, um, there, you know, you can wonder if it's because they're having a bad day or if it's because it's something about you. And I think that people who have experienced racism and people who have experienced these kinds of, of conflictual experiences, um, there's a little voice in the back of your head that wonders, is this because of who this person is or is this because of who I am? And just the, the slight experiences that I have had in my own life makes me sensitive to what that experience is and what that experience means. And I think that that allows me in a very deep way to take my privilege of presenting as a white person very seriously, because I, I know what it feels like to have to carry the cognitive load of wondering what your negative interactions mean. Um, and so I think that that is another way in which my identity as a Jew has uh, informed who I am and, and what I do and the work that I want to make. Yeah, that's a fascinating answer. And uh, I think that at Greenbelt too, we're trying to create this space or foster this environment in which people can view themselves as uh, integrated people. Uh, like you said, you know, you can't separate how your Jewishness forms uh, informs your artistry or your identity or culturally or religiously it's it's all it's all bound up in 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 who you are and I think that I guess partly at Greenbelt we're trying to be a space that uh, gives people the freedom to bring those elements of their lives together and figure out how they actually integrate rather than holding them apart which uh, a lot of us have to do in various aspects of our life because of the way society works i guess um you mentioned earlier on the way that the the left had failed to to tell uh, you know have a good narrative about uh, meaning making for us and i think that was really really challenging and interesting here in the uk um over, over recent years we've got into a real pickle with anti-semitism again uh, particularly on the left and it's been a really um sort of fascinating but also concerning uh debate that that's uh, unfolded and i'm not sure that any of us really knows quite what it was about um but in a sense you know some of us uh in terms of uh looking at um the state of israel today wonder you know where does where does anti-semitism end and where does possible critique of um 
the actions of the government uh, of of Israel begin. And I think there's in England, we're, in, in the UK, we've got ourselves really tied up in knots around all that. Um, I, I don't know if you have anything, uh, you know, any any thoughts from your own experience to to help us there, because it's it's something I think that we as Greenbelt want to do a lot better with. Um, but it feels so difficult to to unravel and, and get into. Yeah, I can speak to that. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you a story. I, I played at the Cambridge Folk Festival last summer, and it was a tremendous experience. I was very pleased to be at that festival. It felt like a like a lovely honor to be on the bill with so many tremendous artists and et cetera, and et cetera. After my main stage set, I was doing a, a signing session in, in the sort of merch tent, and somebody came up to me and he said, oh, you... you um, you know, you talked about um, some Jewish things and you, you mentioned some Jewish themes and the, the clarinet and the Jewish sending music. I think it's all great. But I'm wondering, how do you justify the illegal actions of the prime minister of Israel? And to me, what he what what's anti-Semitic about that um, is the underlying assumption that I, as a Canadian, a person of Jewish faith have to answer for the crimes of the prime minister of a country that I have nothing to do with. And, you know, we, we don't see people going to Chinese New Year events and putting up banners that say free Tibet and trying to disrupt the event. I'm not saying we should do that, but there are many examples of Jewish cultural or religious events who are interrupted by protesters who want to talk to them about Israeli politics. And so this conflation of the identity of the Jewish person or the person of Jewish faith or the person of Jewish identity or the person of Jewish cultural orientation with needing, with being responsible to answer for the politics of the war criminal Benjamin Netanyahu is a, a burden that is placed on individual Jews that is unfair and that is deeply problematic. And I think it, it, it walks into a territory of anti-Semitism, not in the sense that I hate Jews or I think that you're a bad person, but in the sense that there's no separation. There's no privilege of separating one's religious identity with the politics of a country that one doesn't necessarily have any allegiance to. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's that piece of it, which I think is, is a big piece of it. And then there's also the issue of hypersensitivity, which you can't blame people for when they've witnessed their grandparents die in concentration camps. So I don't, I don't want to excuse oversensitivity, um, but I, I think that it is not always the completely um, Machiavellian, opportunistic sort of a thing that many people ascribe to reading certain things hypersensitively. Um, I think that there is a, a way of, of having empathy for people who feel like they're constantly under attack because a lot of it is not imaginary. So there's, there's a difficulty there. And, you know, I, I, would, I would say that the situation in the state of Israel or in the Middle East in, in general is deeply complicated with a lot of ugliness. And I, I would say, don't trust anyone who has simple answers. 
I mean, it's it's a it's a profoundly complicated and intractable situation. I mean, in the UK, you can pat yourselves on the back for having sorted out the situation in in or the troubles in in Northern Ireland, but we're seeing now in the Brexit negotiations that things are not as stable and as clear and as civilized or whatever as we, as we want to call it. I mean, there are are complicated and intractable problems that have as much to do around identity and tribal senses of belonging as they do with politics, as they do with religion. Uh, and I think that we see in the divide between the right and the left in the UK and around the world that people, once they get pushed into camps, it's very difficult to have discourse. And so if, if people on the left and people on the right in England can't sit down with each other and have meaningful, fruitful conversations, then how can we expect the grandchildren of uh, of people who engaged in questionable tactics uh, in acquiring a state, um, how can we expect their grandchildren to do better than we can? So, you know, I don't have an answer, but I, I just think it's, it's, it's really, really tough. And I think that people ought to be generous with each other as human beings first. It's one of my favourite songs that you've done recently, Ben, is Truth Doesn't Live in a Book. It's from, it's from the musical Old stock a refugee love story mm-hmm. uh, and i remember i passed it around the office because i just thought it was such a lovely uh way of how you describe kind of your fate about about it being this book not holding every set in stone truth but looking through it in more poetic or using it as a lens to kind of focus your view on the world around you as you see it now listen that that song when i wrote that song you know, I was I was thinking about um, religious people who have a a proclivity towards um, literalist readings of text, and uh, there are there are Jews who I love and respect who read the book that way, and I think it is even uh, more common in the Christian tradition, although not uh, ubiquitously so. Um, you know, th- there's a there's a sense in the Jewish tradition, a deep sense that the Torah, as we call it, the, the um, I don't like the term Old Testament because it makes it sound so stuffy. Uh, the, the original Testament, version one, um, or the, the Jewish Bible, we can say. So, so the, the Jewish Bible is um, a book that we as a, as a people have almost never taken at face value. I mean, the Talmud, which is a collection of 64 tractates of of texts, it's an enormous work that can take a lifetime to study. That is a recording of the oral law. And so we have this, this sense that we have this tradition that when the Torah was given, it was given along with the oral law. And that after the Babylonian exile, a bunch of sages decided, well, we're getting pretty spread out. And so if we don't write it down, then we're going to lose it. And so how do they choose to write it down? They wrote it down by recording arguments. And so in the Talmud, I mean, it's easy to find all sorts of ugly texts, which a lot of anti-Semites are, are more than happy to do, because the, you have disagreeing opinions and people playing devil's advocate and people voicing adversarial views so that they can, through a dialectic, arrive at the truth. And sometimes they finish an argument by saying it's this person's opinion is what we go with. Sometimes it's this and that. And sometimes the this and that are opposing views. Sometimes they are diametrically opposed. And so there's this fluidity, there's this sense of the complicatedness of of what truth is that is built into Jewish scholarship. And so the idea of, for example, an eye for an eye sounds kind of violent. 
when you read the Talmudic verses that discuss what does an eye for an eye mean, it says, the, first of all, it says it's the monetary value of an eye. And it makes it very clear that you're not supposed to be going around sticking people's eyes out. But it's that if you do damage to somebody, you are obligated to repay them in some way. And it's also, through the Talmud, read as a limit, which is to say not a head for an eye, not an arm for an eye, but that you do not take more than what has been taken from you. And so th these are, are from a, a, a standpoint of Jewish scholarship, these are integral parts of how you can interpret and understand what is actually operating here. And so when I see people say an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, it's like, yes, that's true. And that's a valid critique of a literalist reading of that line. That's not my tradition to read that line literally. Um, so that's that's a lot of what's operating in, in that song, is me trying to do a sort of tongue-in-cheek and humorous expose of, of um, you know, what is in my mind a, a, a problematic thing, which is to read text literally. And I, I know I'm dragging on for a long time, but I want to say that I've been thinking about, in the context of this song, I've been thinking a lot about the United States Supreme Court. And we have these... <laughs> this group of people who are textualists, textualism. And yeah. what does that mean? It means reading the book as if it was a fixed document. And to me, that's, that's counter to what my sense of justice is. And my sense of justice is that it is involved often of compromises. The ugliest compromises is what I say in that song. And that you have to be able to respond to the, the contemporary moment that you're in and all of the information that you have to hand. And I think that this textualism represents a strain of fundamentalism. And what is fundamentalism but a belief that there is some fundamental original place that you can return to where things are simple and clear. And that is a lie, because life has always been chaotic and full of lots of gray zones. Even my friends in the time when they were writing the Bible, uh, there was lots of gray zones and, and complicated things. And to imagine that there's some place that you can go to when things are simple is, is a lie. It's a tempting lie, um, and I think it, it paves the road for a lot of ugliness. You find it in the little surprises. The good book is only a lens to focus the view. Justice for all is composed of the ugliest compromises. You can't only look at the lens, you gotta look through. I think we need to play that song out at the beginning of every day at Greenbelt and you've just <laughs> preached the gospel according to Greenbelt. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> You're more than welcome. <laughs> You're a brilliant artist and a lot of the artists that we're speaking to, they have kind of a political um, thread going through their work too. And sometimes in music, that's frowned upon if you're wanting to make a career in the mainstream or if you're wanting to become like widely accepted or played on radios or anything like that. Do you, do you, have you ever come up against that? I just haven't really cared, is the honest answer. <laughs> I mean, would it be nice to have a radio hit? Sure. Put my non-existent kids through college. Why not? Um <laughs> you know but it's it's that's not you know I, I have certainly focused a lot of my energy and attention on the entrepreneurial side of what i do of, of running it as a business and being able to to eke out a living um 
you know, I used to have management, for example, and management charges typically a 20% commission on, on your gross as an artist. And when I am touring live with a you know, four or five piece band all the time, uh, production costs are pretty high and paying a commission on the gross winds up getting pretty expensive, which is a long winded way of saying I've taken on most of the management roles myself. So it's not that I'm not commercially oriented. It's that it's just never really been a question for me about, you know, giving up um, on my muses in exchange for trying to produce something that, that I imagine may have more commercial potential. And, and I think that, you know, trying to play that game of, of trying to figure out what the pop DJs are going to want to hear next is, uh, you know, in my brain, it's a game for rich people. Like, I don't have the resources to sit around and just try to churn content out of the content mill. I can only examine what's in my soul. You know, and and my vision is that that is what is going to allow people to resonate with the work that I'm making, and and you know, large scale commercial success be damned. My my obligation as an artist is to try to make art, um, and if it has an audience, then great, and if not, then too bad. But I, I strive for artistic excellence, but I allow the content to be defined by you know whatever is on my mind. How do you want your audience to leave your gig? I, I've been to a few of your gigs and um, I was talking to Paul about it the other day and I kind of described it like a folk burlesque show. How do you want your audience to leave after they've seen you play? One of my goals on stage is to give people permission to be exuberant um, and to like access like the, the, the joy of madness and chaos and absurdity in their own lives. And the way that I do that is by trying to, to demonstrate that um, in, a, in, a, in an exaggerated way, um, just the exuberant joy of living. Um, and I also seek to, to hold up and look at some ugly things too. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I want people to leave with a smile on their face and a question in their hearts. Do you find that that, uh that hope is is helped by the the fact that you so very naturally and often um mine into the the sort of that the klezmer folk tradition of of eastern europe because that seems to for my mind and i'm this is a very simplified oral reading of it it feels klezmer gives you that opportunity to combine chaos and joy with with shades of mournfulness in a way that perhaps a lot of musical forms don't yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and that's something that I think is, is deeply rooted in, in Jewish culture and Jewish tradition. Um, you know, there's a reason we break a glass at a wedding. Um, and the reason is to remember the destruction of the temple and that the world is, is an unfinished place. Um, what a what a what a crazy tradition to have the moment after you've consummated, you know, the joining of two lives for eternity, that you then take a moment before it's totally done to destroy something to remember that the world is unfinished. Um, so there's something about emphasizing brokenness, emphasizing um, the mission towards um, renewal and um, to make the world a brighter place that is incipient in, in all, all, all different kinds of Jewish cultural um, you know, modes. And, and within the music, absolutely. Yeah, there's this way in which, you know, how can we make this major scale 
sound a little bit minor. You know, it's like, okay, we'll put the fourth in and then we'll, you know, add in a sharp nine and it's just going to sound a little. <laughs> and so there's these ways of, of trying to, you know, minor up the major just a little bit. And I think that that comes from this, this deep cultural place. your experience of coming to Greenbelt, if you remember it a few years ago and what you thought. I know you weren't on site for too long, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a beautiful experience. It was, um, I mean, there's, there's festivals that I've experienced in Canada that have a similar vibe and aesthetic um, in some senses. But there was this feeling at Greenbelt, like, like this was a decades-old um, community that had formed itself very intentionally and with a lot of of soul and with a lot of heart and so there was this way in which i I felt like i was stepping into this village that had come together um with a clear sense of purpose and it was a very it was a very beautiful experience to sort of like you know get, get picked up at the airport and sort of like taken to this little paradise um yeah, to meet all sorts of interesting human beings who who uh, who seem to have you know issues of 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 justice and and peace and brotherly love, um, you know all of these things seemed to be built into the architecture of the festival, and uh, so it was just yeah a really really beautiful breath of fresh air. It's amazing that you got that from being there for a few um, hours because I, I would say that's completely accurate and we find it so hard to describe what Greenbelt is to people, you know, because it's not simple. It's not simply a Christian festival. It's not simply a music festival. It's not simply an arts festival. It is kind of what you said. It's like this community that has intentionally built itself with all of these various facets to it. And so it's amazing that you got that in a few hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I doubt you remember this, Ben, but you left a beautifully handwritten note on Catherine's office door, uh, which read, Greenbelt is unique insofar as it's a festival that nourishes the spectrum of the human experience. It's not just a reverie of licentiousness, but it nourishes the spirit, intellect and soul of all artists and attendees. And uh, we've kept that note. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah. It sounds like it sounds like I was trying to get every dollar I could out of my liberal arts education. <laughs> did, Come on. Yeah. All those yeah. all those ten dollar words. Jeez, who are you trying to impress, Kaplan? Come on. <laughs> yeah, we're not playing you at Scrabble next time you come, that's for sure. <laughs> Ben, I know that this is a silly question, but here in the UK, the government uh, a few weeks ago came out with this notion when it was addressing the artistic community who are feeling pretty forlorn right now because unlike uh, you up there in the Atlantic States in Canada, we can't get back to li- the live um, performance experience really in any meaningful way yet. So the UK government said to the artistic community, why don't you think about, you know, all of you as individuals, think about retraining. What would you do? And so just as a bit of fun, we're asking all the artists that we're, we're talking with, you know, if you had to retrain, Ben, can you imagine being anything other than um, a singer-songwriter, theatre maker as you are now? What would you do? What would you be? I mean, first I want to say that I think the, the premise of that advertising campaign is like just deeply offensive to me. Um, you know, doctors can save your life. Artists give you something to live for. 
you know, and so this idea that that we should all become, uh, you know, coders and and engineers and lawyers, um, I think misses something that is um, profound. And I, you know, it would be another thing if it was like, you, you know, maybe you can retrain, but how can we bring art into more people's lives as a non-commercial uh, activity, since it's obviously not working as a commercial activity right now? How can we find ways of using the artists to bring meaning to people who are stuck in isolation? Uh, how can we use artists as a way of finding ways of um, making life richer? for those of us who have been cut off from the social interactions that give our lives meaning. Um, but instead it was like, okay, you whiny artists, you think that you're entitled to a career in this field. Well, guess what? Uh, here as uh, your conservative leaning government, we're here to inform you that you're not entitled to anything, but that you need to work for what you uh, want in this life. And so why don't you consider a, a different field? You know, uh, can I say the F word? Um, yeah. Fuck. That's all. That's all I have to say about that. Um, fuck. Um, it's just so goddamn bleak. So, you know, what would I do if I if I was going to choose another vocation? I mean, and here's the difference as well. It's like there's there's a career and there's a vocation. Yeah. And I think that this this uh, this marketing campaign. Um, fails to distinguish between the two and therefore fails to acknowledge the complete 3D-ness of what it means to be a human being. Um, but to set that aside, I don't know, maybe I'd go into politics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so good, Ben. Thank you for going there with us. You've uh, vocalized what we're, what we're feeling. Oh, it's, it's, it's getting dark out there. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed um yeah and and how can we how can we get green belters to engage with and support your work um do, do they just go to your website i know you're, you're producing a podcast at the moment what would you want green belters to do to get into your work more yeah so i mean I, i've actually paused my podcast i was i was sort of doing a, a gentle exploratory foray into that world which i did by by hosting my podcasts as a as a live youtube phenomenon um and i so those those are still up on youtube the the five or six that i produced are up there at youtube.com slash ben kaplan music um so you can find that uh, but I, I i will plug the fact that i am uh, I, I took all of uh those efforts aside to to sort of begin to re-engineer the concept and what i wanted to do and i'm now getting ready to officially launch a proper podcast that'll be available on all of your podcasting locations in uh hopefully early january of 2021 uh, so that will be a way that people can engage with my with my thinking it's going to be conversation based um production um but uh, my music is, is available on Spotify and iTunes and all of those places. And people can go to bencaplan.ca to find out any upcoming tour dates and to find links to all of the aforementioned things. My own web store, for example, which is hosted on Bandcamp, if people are familiar. But they can find that through my website as well. Um, yeah, I think those are the, the principal the principal things. Oh, and I should plug the fact that who knows if it'll ever come together, but I'm working on, on a UK tour uh, for March of 2021. So my, my fingers are crossed that, uh, you know, you guys will get your, your things together and be able to create an environment in which I can play some small socially distant shows. Um, then if that all comes together, then, uh, then I'll be over there in March. 
Thanks so much, Ben, for your time. And we wish you safe travels onto your gig tonight. And we hope that your time in, was it Ottawa? That's right. I'm heading to yeah. Ottawa, yeah. Uh, we hope that that goes well and that your, your returning to your live work um, rewards both you and your audiences. Thank you so much. It was really lovely speaking with you. Yeah, you've been such a brilliant guest. Thank you so much for giving us the time. Absolutely. All right, take care. Thanks, Ben. Bye. Bye. So, Catherine, what a great guest Ben Kaplan was. I can't believe that he was that eloquent from just with no preparation. Like we don't send our artists their questions or what we're going to talk about beforehand. Just pulling on the side of the road and being able to speak like that is just, <laughs> I w- m- that would have taken me like a month's worth uh, worth of scripting work to say half of what he said. <laughs> yeah, and it, it all felt so heartfelt and instinctive and natural and human. And, you know, he said a, a few occasions through the podcast and then at the very end in a throwaway, you know, oh, you know, perhaps, perhaps one day I might be a politician. And, you know, what when i was listening to him speaking with us i thought yes you've got the gift of communication i think people would listen to you i think people would be persuaded by you i think they'd want to follow follow you i think you know he's got that gift of of communication it's beautiful yeah you know because i think that we're what we're missing in our age is those kind of like eloquent philosophers that can talk to us about the direction that we're going in life and and think about whether we're going in the right direction or what we're ignoring or what life is about. He's one of those people. What do you think? I mean, one thing that struck me that Ben kept talking about was how much respect he had for the officials in Canada and how positive he was about their response to the COVID pandemic. And how they you know use like an honor system with 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 how they give out money like we're going to use the honor system because you're desperate and then we'll figure it out afterwards but let's get you some money yeah didn't didn't it seem in stark contrast to the things that we've experienced here in the UK and that we've heard other artists talking about like Lee Baines in the states for instance it seems such a contrast to hear Ben talking about the way that Canada and the Canadian government have responded to the the virus yeah and he he sounded proud didn't he he sounded really proud to be Canadian that he was being looked after that he felt like the government was acting in the public interest um and these are the things you want your government to do and it felt like he he was proud of that and that the public trusted them the public went yeah right we're gonna we're gonna do these we're gonna abide by these restrictions gladly because we know that you've got our best interests at heart it felt like nothing that i'd ever heard before in my lifetime like that's not how you feel about your government that's not how you feel about people in power that's not how people in power react like I loved hearing that. Do you remember that film that Michael Moore made years and years and years ago called Bowling for Columbine? Yeah. In in that, I think it's in that film. I mean, he's made a lot of films, so I might be I might get this wrong. There's a section where he he tracks along the border between Canada and and the states, and he just draws contrasts between people and the way people live on either side of the border. And it struck me hearing Ben speak that it reminded me of that old phrase that Canada is like the United States with the madness taken out. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, how two countries can differ so much in their culture and be next door to each other is quite incredible. 
Ben refuses to um, forget the fact that the world is broken. And that comes largely from his Jewishness and his Jewish heritage and identity. And that, that great story, he said, you know, why do you think that we break a glass at a wedding? You know, just at this moment where you think it'd all be about joy and future possibility, we smash something <laughs> to remind <laughs> ourselves that everything is broken and it's our our work as humans is to is to love one another so that we can heal that brokenness. I loved that and I feel like that would have been a really useful thing to acknowledge right from when I was a kid up until now. Like if that was just part of my culture, part of my upbringing, I think people would be able to accept it a little bit more. Like life is joyful and brilliant, but it's also not finished and it's broken. You've got a future as a theologian yet, Catherine. And I think that in my tradition, I was brought up, you know, uh, in a fairly traditional uh, evangelical sort of Baptist Christian setting. And it, for us, the brokenness was all about the fall. You know, it's the fall. We've sinned. Everything went wrong right at the beginning. It was all perfect. And then we cocked it up. And so in my mind, that doesn't talk so much about brokenness. It talks about naughtiness. It just yeah. says we're all naughty and there's nothing we can do. We're just un- irredeemably naughty. And we're just all naughty, 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 naughty. And for me, that's not very helpful. Um, I, li- I like the idea of we're, we're part of something that is broken, that we need to be part of helping to mend. Uh, I think that feels more healthy. Yeah, because I guess that with the naughty and with that blame, what it's also saying is like, so be good, pray harder step in line and then the world will be fixed and that's just not how it works you in particular um love that song um that he's written called that's in old stock the musical it's called truth doesn't live in a book yeah that is a great song if any of you want to check out one song by ben kaplan go to that one first um why do you like that song catherine to me, it sums up how the problems, and we talk a little bit about this in the podcast, the problems with people reading things literally. And whenever we face, I mean, we face a lot of those things through Greenbelt uh, around some of the issues that we try and have conversations about. The counter argument is, well, this is what the Bible says. So full stop, this is how things are. And this is a really lovely, funny conversation about how that it should be a lens for people to look through. I think that, you know, one thing that Greenbelt over its history has tried to provide an alternative space for is people who've struggled to to read things as literal. When, when life is just not like that, life is sort of story, is narrative, is complexity, is compromise, is it's messy. He was talking about how um, that these oral traditions of passing down these stories could sometimes end with a disagreement like it's both this and it's that it's both that is particularly a jewish idea as well which christians could definitely benefit from is that is that truth and meaning are made in argument are made in 
dialectic in made in talking with each other and often sort of not quite agreeing with one another and having different ideas about things um and i think that there's a lot we could learn from that my sort of faith tradition encouraged this sort of like very personal sort of piety where you did everything you did all your sort of learning and study and quiet times sort of in private all on your own so you came to your very own individual ideas on things much healthier to come to sort of more group understandings about things i think where the whole group has to share an understanding of something because that's going to be more life-giving and healthy because it's going to work for more people yeah imagine if we'd grown up with that tradition how much would be solved by that the fact that we can disagree the fact that there isn't one outcome to a situation that there's not just one path that we all should follow Sort of one of those classic examples of funny, not funny, uh, when he was talking about that whole retraining thing that the government had that campaign for artists to retrain. I mean, his response to that was the best. And it's weird because, like, um, he was talking about how, like, you know, it was almost like the government was saying, hold on, you artists, you have to work for what you get in this life or whatever. Like, I've known a lot of artists and theatre makers, and they are some of the most hardworking people that I have ever met because you do you have to work hard to make it to make money to make a living it it takes everything in you to do that not only do you have to work really hard that it's not like the sort of everyday job that's like a career it's it's much more vocational than that it's connected to who you are it's it's the way that you express your identity so it's it's not like just a job that you can switch off or switch on it's it's part it's who you are i did like the fact that when like dominic cummings was leaving everybody was saying oh his next career is in the ballet he just doesn't know it yet coming to the end of this podcast series that we've done this second series i'm just in awe of the privilege that we have of connecting with these artists who come to greenbelt and who are just doing such wonderful and brave and creative things Yeah. And it, you know, it actually gives me a lot of energy because we, you know, we are a festival that tries to do things right and to do things that we believe in our heart and to go about it in that way. But we also have to, you know, not lose lots of money each year. So we always toe this line, I think, about whether we should be acting with a more commercially driven mind around the people that we book or whatever and you know we have a lot of feedback that's like get bigger headliners get bigger artists and but our artists are intentionally chosen because of what they're doing and and this podcast season has made me feel like we may be making the right choice and we should stick to our guns around that it's funny isn't it that we you do need reminding of those things because because things get hard they get challenging and if you're not trying to do the obvious thing it becomes very easy sort of like in a subtle way to sort of forget those things and just to oh yeah go on then that's fine settle for something but i think i agree with you catherine talking to all these artists has reminded me of our duty of the space that we need to be making to keep doing it and that it's complicated it's not simple it's complicated and it's going to be difficult but it's the right thing. That was Ben. 
amazing to spend some time with him. Next week on the podcast, we are talking to the Palestinian poet and activi- activist Rafif Siada. And again, a wonderful conversation. Our final conversation of this season. Wow, it's gone so quickly. Mm-hmm. So quickly. Yeah, it's going to be episode eight. So tune in next week to listen to Rafif Siada. So if you want to keep in touch with us, please write in and tell us your thoughts on this episode or answer any of the questions that we've asked you on the episode. And you can do that using our email address, which is stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. And if you want to sign up to any general festival news about Greenbelt Festival so we can let you know about how things are going, you can sign up to our weekly dispatches email newsletter on our website. Out and about on socials, we are at Greenbelt on Twitter and at Greenbelt Festival on Instagram and Facebook. So please let us know what you're thinking on your platform of choice. So thank you, as always, to everyone who helps us make this podcast, um, especially to Daisy in the office and Paul, who helps us think through some of the questioning and the framing of this, these podcasts, and to Jake and Josh, who do the editing and make the podcast sound decent. Thank you to everybody. Ben was also extremely wise, I thought, about in his description of Greenbelt. He he nailed it. Completely nailed it. And honestly, he was only on site for a couple of hours. Like, he wasn't on site for very long because we were kind of, we kind of shipped him in from somewhere else and shipped him back out again. And it was amazing that he managed to get that. He felt that Greenbelt was a decades old community that had formed itself intentionally, like a village which had come together with a clear sense of purpose. That's our marketing sorted out for next year. <laughs> We've spent years and years and years trying to explain that to people. <laughs> we just needed to get into Ben Kaplan's head. There it is. <laughs>